0: Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. In popular culture, certain stereotypes plague the mailman. They usually involve either barking, biting dogs, or going postal. Because the mail never stops. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. There's never a let up. It's relentless. Every day it piles up more and
2: more and more. And you've got to get it out. And the more you get out, the more it keeps coming in. And then the barcode reader breaks, and it
3: publishes clearinghouse data. All right, all right.
1: That is, of course, Seinfeld's nemesis, Newman, from the hit TV show. Atlanta resident Floyd Martin's experience on the job was more like the episode when Seinfeld spent a day in the Postal Service. I can't believe I'm gonna be a mailman.
4: (laughs) There you go. Merry Christmas! Mail on Sunday.
1: Oops! Floyd was a beloved mail carrier who worked the same route in Marietta for nearly 35 years. So beloved, in fact, that when he retired a few weeks ago, the community he served started a GoFundMe page to send him to Hawaii. Delta Airlines pitched in too, providing airfare. Well, Floyd Martin, Mr. Floyd, to his Marietta <laughs> residence, joins me now in the studio to reflect on his life and career with the Postal Service and the other parts of his life. Floyd, welcome.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Congratulations. Thank you. So when you were unemployed many years ago, first applied to the USPS, nearly 35 years ago, I guess, you didn't hear back from them. So you found another job. What did you do?
0: I was a teller at a bank. And that went on for about four years. I was working. I was fine. And my mom, I had moved out of home, so my mom told me that I had some mail from the post office. And I was like, well, what do they want? I'm I'm working now. She says, well... Maybe I should open it and see. So I had her open it. They wanted me to come in for an interview. I didn't think anything of it because I was working, but my mom encouraged me. She said, well, maybe you should go and talk to them and see what they're talking about. I went in. They told me how much money I could make starting out, which doubled what I was making at the uh, bank. So I'm like, okay, when do you want me to start?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So what was that like being a mail carrier? It
0: was hard. Yeah? It was very hard. It was like something I had never done in my life.
1: What what made it so difficult?
0: Uh, It's very challenging. You have to have a good memory. You have to have a good pace. It took me a while to get the pace. In fact, at the beginning, I almost quit because I couldn't keep the pace up to do the job and get back before dark. One night I was out at dark and I called my mom. I said, I can't do this. This job is too hard. But she told me four simple words. Hang in there, baby. Hmm. And uh, I remember that every time I wanted to quit. And 35 years later.
1: You you really hung in. I hung
0: in there, you know, (laughs) from the advice from my mom.
1: Well, so you saw kids grow up and go to college. You spoke to some older folks who maybe didn't have a lot of other company. Yeah. You delivered mail to the same community for, was it your entire time? It was
0: close to 30 years.
1: So why was this so important to you?
0: I wanted to be the best mailman that I could, you know, so I put my all into it. I wanted to be good at what I was doing.
1: Well, tell me a little bit about that love you got for, from your customers. When did you find out that community was raising money to send you to Hawaii?
0: I didn't know about that until really around the time I was retiring. I didn't know they had to go fund me accounts. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a big block party for me. My last day of work, and there were over three hundred people there.
1: So, thirty thousand dollars in the GoFundMe account.
0: Actually, thirty-two. Oh, cause so yes. it keeps going,
1: keeps building. Yes,
0: well, it stopped, but uh, it reached thirty-two. That was unbelievable.
1: Well, yeah. What did you do when they presented you with that?
0: I cried. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I was overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. I was overwhelmed by the whole act of love they all decorated the mailboxes for me on my last day the first box i saw i lost it i was like oh my god you know that right there let me know that i did something right mm. you know i got it right and
1: now they've been writing about you you were in the ajc and the marietta daily Dr- people magazine
0: people know about me all over the yeah. world you know people i don't even know are sending me messages. Alyssa Milano, the actress, yeah. they're sending messages. It's mind-boggling.
1: How does that hit you?
0: Oh, it hits me. I'm so full of joy. Yeah. I'm so full of joy. I cry a lot of happy tears. I can't believe, you know, by me just being me, people are reaching out the way they are.
1: So you've talked to you know, a number of media and been in contact with other people about this, but there's a whole other aspect of your life that I think people don't know about. Uh, sure. So tell us a little bit about what you did in your spare time.
0: Well, what I did, uh, back in the, in the late 80s, I started losing friends, mm. one after the other, and that was due to the AIDS crisis. And... Uh, I lost a partner, and then uh, I met another friend. We became partners. He invited me to go to an ACT UP meeting. I didn't know what ACT UP was. Yeah,
1: can you remind us of what it stands for? Uh,
0: AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, That was the first ever grassroots activist group dedicated to changing the course of the epidemic mm-hmm. by any means necessary.
1: Yeah. So it was yeah. a it was a it was a very in your face group yes, at that it was,
0: time. Because there was nothing being done mm-hmm. and people were dying. So instead of people infected with the disease just waiting to die, they decided to rise up and fight for their lives. And I was part of that fight. You know, because of that a lot of people are alive today because of medications that were released.
1: Yeah, there was Um, nobody really advocating for them. No,
0: no, they wouldn't even say the word, Mm -hmm. you know, and people with AIDS were very much discriminated against. Everybody was afraid of them. We didn't have any knowledge, you know, we didn't know anything about it. We didn't even know how you got AIDS. Yeah. We did a lot of great things that is making it a livable chronic disease now.
1: I'm speaking with Floyd Martin, recently retired Marietta mail carrier. He's affectionately known as Mr. Floyd by the community he served for nearly 35 years, a community that raised money to send him on a vacation to thank him. And now we're talking about a whole other aspect of his life. In fact, did people know that, you know, when you were there as their mail carrier, that you were an AIDS activist? No. Would that have endangered your job?
0: I don't think so, but that was something that I just chose to keep private. Mm. What was
1: that like, you know, going on your route every day, people expecting, you know, giving milk bones to dogs and lollipops to kids, keeping a smile on your face when you had friends dying?
0: Well, it took my mind off of all of that. You know, I was able to focus on something else rather than deaths. It took my mind off of things. It helped me to get through a lot of days because I just focused on work. They didn't know any of that was going on.
1: Did you ever consider leaving the job to maybe spend more time on activism, more awareness?
0: No, I had to work. (laughs) I had to make money. So I just did both.
1: You know, I think it's hard, especially for people who did not live through the AIDS crisis, especially in those early years, to understand how devastating and mysterious and just dark it felt.
0: Scary. It was scary. You didn't know if it was going to get you next. Yeah. How
1: did that change the way you related to other people and relationships.
0: It made me appreciate life. Life is a gift. Life isn't promised. No day is promised. So, I think the reason I connected so much with my customers is because I've seen life and I've seen death. And I know that you have to let people know how you feel about them while they're here. And I guess that's what I was doing, you know. I would ask them how they are. I really wanted to know. You know, they knew that I cared. They knew that they were special. And they they knew that I had love for them. I think that's probably where my connection with people came from.
1: And in your lifetime and in your career time, you saw the treatment of AIDS. Yes. Detection of HIV transform and and care. I mean, I think that's one thing that people don't realize that there were nurses in hospitals that wouldn't even look at people who had uh, AIDS.
0: And some doctors didn't want to treat people with AIDS. Some dentists didn't want to.
1: How has that changed in your lifetime?
0: It's a more treatable disease now. So it's a much better place. You can have AIDS and live now. Mm -hmm. I only wish my friends back then would have had access to this, but we made it better for future generations.
1: Do you think future generations understand that?
0: They have no idea. I know there's they a have kind of no idea. They,
1: they, I've talked to other people, it's almost like, you know, they feel like these finger wagging old folks saying yeah. You had no idea. Yeah,
0: because even when we were out there protesting and getting in people's faces, even our own community really wasn't that supportive. What do you mean? You would think that they would be backing you for what you're doing, but they didn't really get it, I don't think. They thought we were just crazy radicals. troublemakers, radicals, yeah.
1: Well, now you're getting all this media attention. How, yeah. does, how does it feel to say this out loud? I mean, you're talking on a radio
0: program. I'm very proud of that part of my life. It was very empowering. You know, I made a difference. I didn't sit back and wait for somebody else to do the job, I did the job myself. I was part of the movement, and I'm very, very proud of it.
1: When do you want to go to Hawaii? When do you plan to
0: go? I'm going to go to Hawaii the end of summer, early fall. What uh, do you get,
1: do, What are your plans there?
0: I want to go to Maui. Uh, I just want to see all the beauty that I've seen in pictures and on TV. I want to experience it all.
1: Mm. Do you miss the people along your route? Oh, I do. Mean, I do. A lot I of do. In fact, there. I
0: went to uh, see a few of them uh, Tuesday. I had to go up for a couple of interviews, and while I had some spare time, I went to visit some of my elder customers because I told them I'd be back, and I'm a man of my word. Yeah, <laughs> and I saw some of my kids. They didn't know how to react. Your They've kids. never seen me in, in real. I clothes. call them mine. You know, I you know <laughs> I call my customers my kids. <laughs> My animals, (laughs) you know, that's how close we are. Uh, Two of the kids on my route.
1: So you've served a role for people.
0: I have. I impacted people, and I had no idea. You know, I was just showing them love and compassion and that I cared. I really cared. I was just being kind, you know. And I miss my customers. I miss my coworkers at Westside Annex, you know. But I can go visit. I can go visit.
1: It seems there's something very old world about knowing your mailman,
0: right? There's something. It's real Mayberry. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's real Mayberry. In fact, one of my customers said that he's like, you know, this is like Mayberry. You know, I I know my mailman, and <laughs> that doesn't you know, everybody happen in the neighborhood. a lot anymore. No, it doesn't. I can't even tell you my mailman's. I name.
1: was going to ask you.
0: What we had was very special. And I don't take that for granted. I could have left that route a long time ago for an easier route, but I wouldn't because of the people on my route. Mm. We had such a a connection that I wouldn't leave them.
1: After being in that uniform and having that kind of identity for people for a long time, what are you discovering about Floyd Martin outside of that uniform, about Mr. Floyd?
0: I think Mr. Floyd is a good man. (laughs) Let
1: me ask you. Read all these articles about you, but in radio, you get to pick a song to leave our
0: listeners with.
1: Any song, song. come to you? A song?
0: Oh my goodness! How about the greatest love of all, Whitney Houston?
1: That's a beautiful choice, Mr. Floyd. Actually, <laughs> I should say Floyd Martin.
0: <laughs> I'm so used to Mr. Floyd. I'm like you made me feel old. <laughs>
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for having me. Have a g- We need we me. need
1: a postcard from Hawaii.
0: Oh, you get one. You <laughs> definitely get one. <laughs>
1: Floyd Martin, he's now retired Marietta Mailman, affectionately known again as Mr. Floyd by the community he served for nearly 35 years. A community is now sending him on vacation to thank him. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. June was declared Lesbian and Gay Pride Month in 2000 by President Bill Clinton. The designation commemorated the Stonewall Riots in Lower Manhattan in June of 1969. Nine years later, President Barack Obama added bisexual and transgender folks, the B and T of LGBT. So the roots of pride go back 50 years, and then some, and celebrations have grown and evolved since. Now rainbow flags are in front yards, tourism posters, along with sponsorship banners and ad campaigns, leading to questions of whether pride and its symbols of countercultural resistance have been commodified. So what does that mean for people of the LGBTQ community? plus community now that corporations embrace the rainbow well taylor alexander is a performance artist musician and drag performer she's also the creator of southern fried queer pride and house of alexander and joining me in the studio taylor welcome
3: hi thank you for having
1: me well thanks for being here cortez wright has been an activist and community organizer for the lgbtq community for 12 years cortez identifies as they is also joining me in the studio thanks for taking the
5: time No problem, thank you for having me.
1: And Patrick Klibanoff is from Atlanta originally. Now he leads the Pride at Uber employee resource group for the Rideshare Company's New York City office and joining us from Argo Studios in New York. Hello, Patrick. Good morning. Well, good morning. All right, a little history. We're going to the Wayback Machine. The first Pride (laughs) Parade was a direct result of the Stonewall Rites, also known as the Stonewall Uprising in New York. So remind us of the history here, Taylor.
3: So essentially Stonewall occurred because the communities there in New York City uh, were fed up. They were tired of being oppressed. They were tired of being locked into paddy wagons and thrown away. Um, And so that's what really started. That's what galvanized the Stonewall riots. And the Stonewall riots weren't just one night. It continued over, you know, consistent nights and throughout the rest of the year with different actions. And that's what led up to the very first Pride march.
1: So this raid of from the NYPD of this bar, somebody throws something, nightsticks come <laughs> out, things start flying. So pride really sprung from this clash and a sentiment of just being fed up, as you said, tired of being targeted. So was it like a stake in the ground, Patrick, do you think?
6: I mean, perhaps, but I think, you know, it's been... It's taken quite a lot of time to get to where we are now. And so while um, that was an important year, I think um, there's a lot of what happened after those events and, and kind of moving forward.
1: So do you think, uh, I'm going to ask you, Cortez, do you think it's broadly understood that the Pride parades come from this specific event like Stonewall or has that been lost through the years?
5: Mm. Um, I think for most people, they do tie it to that specific event and they often think of it as that just that one day the raid happened in one day, people were upset on that one day, people rose up on that one day, and then all of a sudden, pride existed. Um, and in reality, as Taylor mentioned, um, it was a series of days of events, a series of days of actions that happened um, during that time period in 1969. And it both preceded and followed that. Um, so there were actions that happened before Stonewall, and then there were multiple actions that happened after Stonewall. The first um, Pride parade didn't really happen until 1970. Um, but so many of the things that led up to that by different organizations um, and different individuals sort of set the foundation for what would eventually become Pride.
1: So what does it mean to you personally, Pride?
5: Um, oh, wow, that's a, that's a great question. Um, for me, it... Uh, I think I very much identify with what Pride has become now in some ways. Um, The visibility, the representation, the being very um, unabashed about who we are and be very public about who we are. Those are things that resonate with me, um, particularly being from the South and being someone who was born and raised in Georgia, um, where up until I was 18. I mean, I had the internet in the 90s, so of course I saw tons and tons of queer and trans folks, but I didn't really interact with a lot of people that I knew about um, until I left my hometown of Columbus, Georgia. after I turned 18.
1: I know, but that's what's interesting. <laughs> now there are pride parades in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, in, in small towns all across America.
5: Yeah, I mean, there is just uh, a couple of years ago, I found out about a pride parade that happens in Columbus, Georgia, which was very surprising to me. I still haven't gone, um, <laughs> but I imagine it's an amazing time and for so many people similar to me who just did not have in-person uh, connections with other LGBTQ people, it can be amazing, can be very liberatory. Um, that's where my joy of pride starts to waver a little bit, because with, within all of that joy, with all of that celebration, I feel like what's gotten lost is the resistance. And I guess I shouldn't say I think, I know, based off of what we now know from history and, and the... Uh, information that's been shared is that it was a very intentional choice to shift what Pride was, um, so that it was no longer a continuation of a riot, it was no longer the continuation of a protest, but it was very much about, this: look at us, you know, we're queer and trans people and we can be just like you. Mm -hmm. We can be just like uh, straight people, just like cisgender people, Um, we're normal. And I think the basis of pride really was to challenge what it means to be normal. Okay.
1: Let's hold on to that for a minute, because I think that's really the the nut of this conversation in many ways. But I'd love to hear some more personal experience first. Taylor, for you, what does pride mean?
3: Pride to me, especially, is also somebody coming from a small town in Georgia. From where? Griffin, Georgia, <laughs> right below the Atlanta Motor Speedway. Um, so when pride happens, you know, people congregate and... Uh, we meet other people. It's often a good mirror to you know know that we're not the only person in this community going through struggles and through tribulations, and it's a beautiful mirror to have. Um, but it's also a question of, you know, in the in the mind of Stonewall, in the mind of uh, political protest, are we keeping in those same values of like uplifting the most marginalized? And for a lot of people like me, who are Black and Brown, queer and trans, pride often means a reminder that we're still alienated and that sometimes gets lost in the messaging of pride. Um, sometimes the messaging is, we're just like you, equality, put up a rainbow, things like that, but what does that actually mean in like, actions, especially from people outside of the community who call themselves allies?
1: Okay, so going from symbols to actions. So Patrick, I'm gonna pull you in here because you grew up in Atlanta. Do you have any history of having to hide who you are or, or, or a reflection on pride for yourself?
6: Yeah, I think so. I originally grew up in Norcross, Georgia, and then uh, So know, went This to the is
1: all getting revealed here, small town <laughs> Georgia boys. Yes,
6: yes, um, exactly. And so I think, I mean, for me, um, the meaning of pride has really changed as I've as I've grown older, become a little bit more comfortable with my like sexual identity, and just understood um, what it's like to be a member of the LGBT community. I think um, as an adolescent and in high school and, and early in college, I didn't feel like I quite had. Um, Like kind of the queer role models that I was looking for to help me become more comfortable with these feelings that I was having. Um, I would say it was um, probably a year or two after I really came out that I attended my first Pride march or celebration in that sense. Um, It took me a while to just kind of have the confidence to attend that type of event. And I think for someone who was really new to that community, um, those early days of just feeling comfortable were really impactful. And I remember you know, the first Pride Parade I ever attended was in Atlanta, and I had just never seen anything like that before. Mm. Um, even having grown up, you know, 20 minutes north of the city, it was just not something that, um, you know, my family would have ever thought to have done, it, you know, go drive downtown for the parade. And so um, to have since attended many of those parades and seen, you know, more than just teenagers but also families there I think is, is quite a cool um, representation of, of where the community is going as well.
1: That's Patrick Klibanoff, who heads the Pride at Uber Employee Resource Group for the company's New York City office. Also with me, Cortez Wright and Taylor Alexander, both LGBTQ community organizers here in Atlanta. Well, I want to pick up on that, this idea of, you know, that families, this is a family day. This this is a a, a public forum for everybody to join in. and and what does normal mean the this sort of distinction from normal so th- i'd love to hear from more critiques from within the gay community
5: about that mm-hmm. um i think so i very much do agree that pride is for family but i think what another thing that's sort of gotten lost is that so many people are celebrating the families that they've created because their families of origin pushed them out Um, because there wasn't acceptance, because there wasn't acknowledgement of who they were fully as individuals. Their families pushed them out. And so they had to create um, their own families. And as much as we can uh, celebrate seeing so many people being happy in who they are, there's still that, that tinge of sadness knowing that you are still being, pushed out in some ways.
1: So look, today you're celebrated. Today you're sort of honored and venerated and everyone's dancing with you and there's music and there's glitter and all that. But on other days, you may not be treated like that.
5: Exactly. On other days, you you could possibly be sitting in your room, listening to Robin call your girlfriend and crying a little bit Um, (laughs) because you're out at the club and everyone's dancing and having a great time, but you're kind of in the corner going through all of these thoughts of... I don't feel fully accepted in this space and I can't be fully who I am in this space. And, you know, I feel like we should be talking about so much more and and agitating and get so much more. Uh, but what we've sort of been dwindled down to is we're going to have a parade. We're going to hang out in the park. We're going to eat a giant turkey leg. You know, we're going to dance around in rainbows, which is beautiful, but that can't be the only thing.
1: Even if there hadn't been acceptance in broad society in the past, marketers knew that there was a whole segment of the population to be tapped. And there are examples of ads going as far back as the 20s and 30s, you know, with these muscular, attractive, half-naked men for towels, pajamas, gay coding, (laughs) gay coding, really. And we're seeing more companies openly embrace LGBTQ consumers. Soap, Mm. sunglasses, vodka, saying love is love. So, for example, there's a Campbell's Soup Star Wars ad. Let's hear it. (laughs)
5: Dun 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 dun. (laughs) Cooper,
6: I am your father. No, 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 I am your father.
4: (laughs) That's gotta be the worst vader ever.
1: (laughs) Campbell's Star Wars Soups. How about you beat Chewbacca? Did you notice that shift in advertising when you were growing when you were growing up, or seeing that and seeing like, oh, two fathers in one ad for Campbell's
5: soup of all things? I think I didn't necessarily notice uh, the advertising shift, but what I did notice was the shift in media representation. So I grew up where, you know, Roseanne had a lesbian kiss, and before we knew a lot more about who Roseanne was as a person, Um, (laughs) but I grew up when, you know, Roseanne had supposedly one of the first lesbian kisses on television. And so I do remember seeing these shifts where it went from, you know, I was so surprised and and it's sometimes a little scandalized to see um, queer or trans couples in the media that I was consuming back then in the 90s. And then there was a period where it was just very, very common. Um, And I think the thing that I've noticed now is that it was super common, but it was oftentimes usually white couples, um, usually I think Roseanne is one of the outliers where it wasn't a affluent white couple, but most of the time they were really affluent white couples, and then as in, eventually you had as folk and you had the L word, and the in representation just looked a very specific way. That period of time for me was. Similar to my feelings on Pride, it was both a really amazing celebratory moment, um, but then also I was just left wanting more.
1: Not quite represented. How about you, Taylor? Do you want to pick up on that, the idea that Cortez brought up that the more marginalized were not on TV? It was straight, affluent looking white people for the most part.
3: Yeah, I think that, um, so for me, I think the very first gay person I saw on television was two of the characters in Will and Grace. And that was kind of the, like, go-to gay representation, like, TV show for a while. I think a lot of people, not only queer people, but especially, you know, uh, straight people saw that and, you know, ran with it as, like, these are the kinds of, like, gay people. These are the kind of queer people that are out there. And I felt like the community and, you know, the public in general was starved and is still starving for, like, accurate representation. Um, I didn't meet my first uh, queer person or trans person until I came to Atlanta. And just so much beauty happen when you meet people in person. And I think sometimes um, we get very caught up in the idea that we need to see ourselves on TV. And that's very important. But I think sometimes we invest all of our um, energy and, and anger kind of in what's being portrayed to us and reflected to, to us through media or through ads or through corporations, uh, when sometimes the kind of like person-to-person contact where you meet somebody who shows you that there's other options is really important.
1: I'm curious for you, uh, Patrick, do you think you may have found your identity sooner if you had seen somebody who looked like you, quote-unquote, normalized on television?
6: Yeah, in television or really just in real life. I mean, I think um, in high school I knew individuals that were gay but no one that was really dating. And it wasn't until I saw like a gay couple in college that um, it was just a cute relationship and I could see two individuals, you know, in love with one another, and that is when I realized, like, hey, I think I am a gay individual and I can still have this romantic connection with an individual that is also a male. And, um, it wasn't until I really saw that in person and experienced it that I was kind of inspired to further explore, um, you know, my sexual orientation and understand like where I needed to be in order to kind of find that similar happiness. To the points already made, I mean, I think um, we certainly used to mostly represent a certain type of gay or lesbian couple or individual or um, people that already had a lot of existing privileges, and so I think um, what's been good to see as the, as really just the continued diversification of that representation. And so, um, whether there's new mainstream shows on TV um, or again in media and advertising, we're starting to see more um, of these identities. Um, it's that's important for people who who connect with these identities or who they believe are represented by them. But I think it's also important um, for those that um, are just completely unaware or uninformed, um, who may only know that like the L and the G of like this very broad spectrum of community exists. Um, As we continue to see more and more of that in the mainstream media, it it, it helps lift the community further.
1: Patrick Klibanoff, Cortez Wright, Taylor Alexander, stay with us. We're going to take a short break, and we're going to hear Keep on Livin' by La Tigre. We already heard Curious by Haley Kiyoko. We want to give credit to everybody where credit is due. We'll be back with our roundtable of guests to discuss some of the conflicting thoughts about the commodification or commercialization of pride, where it's been, where it's going, as time marches on. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Taylor Swift celebrated Pride Month with a new single. The video for You Need to Calm Down is populated by cameos of LGBT celebrities and calling out bigots like an activist anthem.
3: You just need to take several seats and then try to restore the
1: peace and control your urges to scream about all the people you hate.
6: Your shade never made anybody.
1: Reactions have been mixed and, well, Swift. Critics accuse the pop star of leveraging gay and trans personalities as props to sell records. The video also appears to compare Swift's go-to role as persecuted for being famous with the oppression of LGBT people. We are talking today about just that, commodifying the LGBT experience now that it is, quote unquote, safe for corporate brands to align with this community of consumers. With me are Taylor Alexander and Cortez Wright, two LGBTQ community organizers here in Atlanta. Also with me, Patrick Klibanoff. He's an Atlanta native who leads Pride at Uber for the company's New York City office. Patrick, I'm curious, for you and Uber, why choose to underwrite or sponsor or, let's say, roll in deep with Pride?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's really been important to feel comfortable and, like, kind of bring my full self and my full identity to work. Um, I know a number of individuals who um, do not feel comfortable going to their their offices elsewhere or even maybe at Uber, perhaps, um Uh, But I think my goal really is to just make the work environment as comfortable as possible for as many people as possible. I think there's a lot of education that um, we continue to do to um, you know, inform, like, individuals that may not identify as LGBTQ um, on kind of what it means to be a part of this community, what it means to be an ally, and how they can support their colleagues or their coworkers. workers um, You know, every study will show that the more comfortable you feel at work, you know, the, the more high-performing you're going to be. And so I think that's also a goal of, of Pride at Uber and, and other groups at other companies is to just, um, you know, help people feel comfortable so that they can really perform and just be um, you know as happy as possible in their work environment
1: well wonder about you on the other side uh cortez or taylor you know when you saw that uber is has a is underwriting pride on some level or advertising on pride what are you what are your thoughts
3: well i think that so it's it's this thing that happens every year and i feel a lot of people in the community go through it you know june 1st happens and then all the pride ads all the all the pride uh, merchandise they're all up they're out suddenly all these companies and these corporations that are relatively silent throughout the rest of the year are you know completely in support of the LGBTQ community and to a lot of people that kind of like support only within pride month makes them feel that it's you know it's all for money mm-hmm. that it's just for publicity that it's just to you know, say that we're inclusive and then once July 1st comes along, July 1st comes along, we're back to the regular things, pull the rainbow flags down. And I think it's a conversation of what are these companies and corporations actively doing within their their ranks to support LGBTQ people? Um, are there actual, you know, queer and trans people employed there? Are they being treated just as like any other employee or are they used as mainly like a resource to access community? Um, but also where are these corporations that are making all of this money off of the community? Where is that money that they're making being invested back into the community? You know, I can barely name any corporations on like two hands that, you know, donate back to actual like grassroots organizations or nonprofits. And I'm not talking about like the HRC or these big nonprofits that, you know, relatively have um, not as favorable history within the community, but like these uh, community organizations that are, you know, enriching the lives of the people that are living these truths and living their experiences. I think that, you know, a lot of us, especially who are more marginalized, who are, you know, black and brown, who are poor, the youth, the elderly, um, I think sometimes we look at things that are happening in our community. You know, we've had, there have been four black trans women who have been killed so far this pride month and so for a lot of us we see that happening and no media coverage we see no support or you know paying for their funerals or support of anything by corporations and we you know we walk past Starbucks with their rainbow cups and and all these other corporations doing these things and it feels very fickle and fake to innocence.
1: Well, let me just pick up on that because, you know, we see the same thing on Father's Day, Mother's Day, Christmas, you know, the the the, the ads come out surrounding events. So mm-hmm. that's part of it. But I do understand, you know, this is something that a lot of corporations were accused of doing, greenwashing. You know, like suddenly they were environmentally conscious, mm-hmm. you know, everything mm-hmm. that they were doing was coming from sustainable sources. These things all become symbolic. Then you see in Forbes, companies with LGBT clue inclusive ads can increase sales by 40% and here's why. So there is a kind of <laughs> cynicism to it. And, and, you know, Patrick, sorry, you're representing for the corporation here. So yeah. <laughs> tell us what your thoughts are on that.
6: I mean, I think at the end of the day, it all comes back to kind of what is the company's values and what is what are their intentions for choosing to advertise or promote or really um, broadcast um, any of these themes during Pride or throughout the year. I mean, I think for, for Uber, for example, um, you know, we are not really selling We're selling more of a service versus actual product per se. And so I think, um, that's also important. And so. Um, I think our point of view um, this year, and this is really just my personal point of view, but, you know, our theme with Pride is um, Pride comes in all colors. And so this year, you know, our slogan, our campaign, all of our um, activations and and parades across the country are really honoring, like, the spectrum that is the LGBT community. And so, you know, we've chosen to highlight 12 um, flags or banners that represent different individuals. And so I think... Um, you know, the gay community is often just only referenced or associated with this rainbow flag um, where, in fact, you know, the trans community, the pansexual community, non-binary, lesbian, agender, gender, cetera, all have um, different flags or banners that kind of represent that identity. And so, you know, this year um, we are doing a lot of education and advocacy around these 12 different flags to help you know, educate both our riders, help educate our drivers, help educate our employees, that um, all of these individuals um, represent the diversity that is um, the LGBTQ community. And so I think um, we've taken a little bit of a different approach to help um, expand people's horizons on how they understand those themes. Um, and so I think my big point of view is really just um, it's great to see a lot of representation from these companies. I think we as consumers need to be smart and understand like what are the motivations behind some of these campaigns. Um, but I think if the motivations are good and their intentions are are valid, then um, I think it's great to see um, some of that engagement.
1: Cortez, we have just a couple minutes left, but you haven't weighed in for a little bit. <laughs> so I'd love to hear your thoughts about you know that kind of distinction between, uh, you know, Patrick has just laid out many of the things that they're doing, and, and I think kind of highlighting the difference between purpose and pandering. What mm-hmm. is that to
5: you? Um, I think, and you brought up a great point about how companies um, sort of push out these campaigns around a variety of different uh, celebratory moments throughout the year. Um, and for me, it it, just, it resonates with me the same feelings that I have when it's Black History Month. I imagine the same feelings people have when it's Women's History Month, that and what Taylor's already mentioned is like, what are you doing throughout the rest of the year? Um, and how are you affecting the material reality of people throughout the rest of the year? It always frustrates me to a certain extent because um, with corporations, their bottom line is always going to be profit. Um, and that's just. Blunt honesty is always going to be profit and some companies employ social responsibility to figure out how they can use their profits to benefit the public good. But that's not necessarily something that all companies do. Um,
1: But wouldn't you rather have a company that says we are committed to this and hold them to it than one that isn't?
5: Yes. And also I want that company to to both say, yes, we're committed to this, but then to also show up throughout the rest of the year, to show up at, as Taylor mentioned, at the vigils for trans women of color, black trans women who have been murdered, um, to provide material support for their families, to actively push against aggressive policies on both federal and state levels, to provide protections for their workers that extend beyond we employ LGBTQ people too. We employ people. We also pay them a living wage. We also provide gender-affirming health care. We provide competent health care. Um, we also extend our power and our reach to all of these different areas that impact the lives of queer and trans people.
1: Is it important to have these discussions about like, whether commercialization has taken over Pride?
6: Yeah, I think it's always good to, um, you know, hold these corporations and our communities accountable. I think um, pride is an opportunity to celebrate where we've come, but also to fight for where we need to go. And so I think whether organizations are celebrating what's been done or really pushing the envelope and and calling to action where we need to move next, um, you know, they have strong voices. And if we can get them to speak on the right issues, um, we should celebrate that involvement and and challenge them to do even more.
1: So how do you maintain the meaning of pride for those, the younger, you know, people who are coming up now?
3: By, you know, bringing these conversations up and bringing up these histories and these communities outside of June. Pride is all the time. Pride is me waking up every day knowing that I'm still here and I get to see my beautiful community. Pride is walking outside of my door and seeing people who are like me. And um, pride is knowing that the future will get better and that the struggles that we are facing today won't be the struggles that the youth and that the next generation are going to face.
1: Taylor Alexander, thank you so much. Thank you. Cortez Red, thank you for being here. Thank you. And also Patrick Klibbenoff there in New York City. Thank you so much for speaking with us. When Brian Rucker and Ryan Bars became stepbrothers, they also became a band. Based in Atlanta, the norm fuses hip-hop, rock, and pop, creating a sound that is anything but normal. Days. Use
2: these days. I was just a little kid, looking up at pops. One day i be like him. Miami, my place of birth. This city took me in.
1: The norm's new single, Summer Days, which you're hearing now, is out today. Just in time for the summer solstice. The Norm headlined the AthFest Music Festival Saturday night. But first, they stopped by GPB to add two songs to our Georgia playlist.
3: Yeah, this one right here goes out to all the babies, mamas, mamas. Mamas, mamas.
2: My name is Brian Rucker, and I sing and play guitar in The Norm. The song I chose was Outcasts Miss Jackson.
3: Miss Jackson
2: I chose Miss Jackson because growing up in the 90s I remember the first time the first song I heard from them was was elevators and they were just very different than the hip-hop norm. They were very eccentric and very artistic, and this was something that you didn't really see from a lot of artists. There was a lot of gangster rap going on, and it was was just a different landscape. And when they came through, they were were really true artists. They went on to have a lot of hits. Um, But Miss Jackson kind of crossed that pop threshold. And I love all genres of music, and I love pop music. I think it's... People can say what they want about it, but there's a reason that the masses like pop music. There's a reason people like T-Swift. Seeing that crossover from a band that started in a very much a hip-hop scene in Atlanta and being able to cross that that pop threshold was was really cool. I, even the content, it's, it's, a, it's a love song, essentially. It's timeless I think it's unbelievable you could still, every karaoke bar you go that, that that's the barometer of, of of timeless music is how many people are singing in a karaoke bar and I think that's a go-to every single night
3: I hope we feel like this forever 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 ever hey You know you folks be staying down on the road man, rolling all the way from Florida, MI8,
4: on up the Duval, on up the Tennessee. A lot of the real cheese showing low you know. I'm Ryan Bars and I rap the norm. The song I chose was Rubber Band Man by T.I. That was the first song that I heard from T.I., and uh, that was off his album, Trap Music. And I think it's so cool that, you know, he's one of the forefathers of trap as a subgenre of hip-hop, as well as Gucci Man and Jeezy. And I was in like middle school when that stuff came out, so I was super influenced by that. And uh, I think it's so interesting today that trap has become what it has become, and it's influenced music all across the globe. You know, now it's you have country trap crossover, like the Old Town Roads, biggest song of this year, all the way to like K pop songs where they're incorporating those sounds. Or, like, if you listen, the other day I went down this rabbit hole of listening to K pop, listening to French rappers and German rappers, and K-pop. the new artists all have that like trap, hi hat, 808. It's just like, it's all a derivative of what the sound that was born in Atlanta. So, I think it's really cool that. Atlanta has really inspired the world, which is mm-hmm. pretty pretty huge. There's tons of, of rock influences and blues influences from Atlanta, but I think hip-hop has become a, heavy, a
2: heavyweight in, in uh, pop music. I mean, hip-hop's the most popular music there is right now. It's number one music in the yeah. You listen to it, it's not really... It's pop music. It's, it's the most popular genre. If you
4: go to a party, what, what do you hear? We wouldn't have the trap we have today without that so you always have to pay homage and respect to that
2: it's all it's all derivative um it's evolution the sounds have changed like from from a production standpoint the sounds have changed a lot for sure
4: but it's still you still got that Roland 808 hi-hat and
2: the bass drum is still still
4: there (laughs) there's other sounds might who I is what does he say
2: who I'm is who I'm is my bad rubber band man (laughs) the game don't change
1: And that was stepbrothers Brian Rucker and Ryan Bars. Together, they are the Atlanta-based band The Norm. Their next show is Saturday at the AthFest Music Festival in Athens. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Layton Rowell, and Raven Taylor. Jesse nicewanger is our engineer. Our interns are Allison Kraussman and Jake Troyer. Don Smith, our Dean of Grammar, Amy Kylie is senior producer, and Sarah Shariari is managing editor of GPB News. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. This is On Second Thought.
3: Hey, he's almost talking about